Our Bible reading comes from Luke chapter 2, reading from verses 41 to the end of the chapter, 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relations and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand. And saying that, he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and man. Amen. A wonderful story we get to reflect on this morning. A unique story here in Luke's Gospel, not found in any of the other Gospels. And I'm glad it's included. I pray this morning that God would speak to us from this short story that we all may find ourselves more amazed and inspired by the life of our Lord Jesus and that the truth of God's word might touch our hearts and minds this morning. Well, if you were to scan back to the start of chapter 2, which we reflected on last week, the birth of Jesus Christ, and then then move to verse 22, uh, where we see Jesus as presumably a six-month-year-old presented at the temple, And then once again, forward to our passage today, verse 41, we see Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. So this one chapter that we've spent these these past two weeks reflecting on, and you have been reflecting on in your Bible study groups, it spans the first 12 years of our Lord and Saviour's life. And what we'll see next week is another jump of about probably 15 to 18 years as John the Baptist prepares the way for the Lord. It would certainly be an interesting read if we were given the full timeline of our Saviour's development. I imagine in many ways it was similar similar to all of us, our development, but at the same time incredibly different. I can't imagine Jesus getting a phone call home after being caught swearing in the school playground like what happened for me. (laughs) I can't imagine Jesus lying to his teachers about his homework uh, and why it wasn't completed. I can't imagine Jesus having big fights with his siblings, which resulted in timeouts and perhaps smacked bottoms. I can't imagine Jesus talking back to his parents or throwing a tantrum. The Gospel writers thought it unnecessary to include extensive details about the growth and development of Jesus, but Luke here does give us some information. In verse 40, just before our reading for today, in verse 40 we read, And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. Now this verse 
that one verse, verse 40, bridges the gap between the six-month-old baby Jesus and the 12-year-old boy Jesus. And what we see is that his development over this time was similar to our own. He grew and became strong. But I suppose that's where the similarities stop. As we read, he was filled with wisdom. He was strong in the spirit. And the grace and favour of God was upon him. He was filled with wisdom. Now, I've never met a wise 12-year-old. I would say that they are few and far between, aren't they? Perhaps they are wise compared to other 12-year-olds, but I've never really met a a wise 12-year-old. This story that we are reflecting on today reveals that this boy was no ordinary 12-year-old. And I wonder if an appropriate response for us today is to simply sit and marvel at our Lord Jesus, to be so filled with wonder at the life that he lived and to be struck by the truth of the gospel that this child, he is our saviour. Throughout history, and it still happens to this day, Jewish boys at the age of kind of 12 or 13 would go through a coming-of-age ceremony known as Bar Mitzvah. This is done to celebrate and mark their change into adulthood, uh, where the responsibility for their Jewish faith was now their own. It wasn't dependent on their parents, it was now their own. And it was customary here in Jesus' time that one year before this ceremony, the boy's parents would take him to Jerusalem, where they would show him the temple and take them on a tour around the holy city in preparation for this ceremony to come in about one year's time. Now, we're not certain, but it does seem likely that this is the reason that this year, Mary and Joseph took the boy Jesus along with them for the feast of the Passover. And we read that after the festival was over, Jesus' parents, along with their full company of relatives and friends, began the trip home to Nazareth. The only problem, of course, is that they had left their son behind in Jerusalem. Joey fell off our bed one time. It happens. (laughs) He's fine, uh, as you know. But you know how it happened, don't you? I thought that Jess was watching him. And Jess thought that I was watching him. (laughs) I imagine this almost comical moment between Mary and Joseph. So so how's Jesus finding all the walking? How would I know? You tell me. (laughs) Ha ha, very funny. Now, Now where is he? Don't you have him? No, I don't have him. Now this all makes perfect sense because usually in these big journeys, the women and the young children would walk at the front. Then the men and the young men would walk at the back. Now, Jesus, at this age, is neither a child or a young man. He's not a young child, and he's not really a young man yet. You can see how this all would have unfolded. And while our first thought might be uh, that this is a a humorous mix-up, because we have read on and we know that Jesus is safe, I can imagine Mary and Joseph not quite seeing the funny side. Where's Jesus? Where's my boy? Have you seen Jesus? We've lost him. We haven't lost Joey yet. I guess he uh, can't really wander off too far, can he? It'll happen. As I look around, maybe some of you have have lost track of your children at the shopping centre or at the beach. My parents lost my sister Gemma at the Easter show once. Name me a worse place to lose a child than the Easter show. Once on a a family camp, uh, Jess and I just happened to be the oldest people uh, kind of 
looking after a, a group of younger cousins and family friends. But nobody said to us, hey, you guys are responsible, okay? You guys are looking after all these kids. And, and so we're on this, this family camp and, and we're down at the beach and we're swimming away and there's probably about 15 or 20 kids all around. And suddenly someone says, where's Ashley? Where's Ashley? This little boy who had been, you know, with us for this whole week, where's Ashley? And I remember Jess and I, she probably remembers this, we, we locked eyes for a second and it was like this terror of, are we responsible for Ashley? No one had said to us, you guys are in charge of Ashley. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, the last place I saw him was struggling against the waves trying to get out the back with all of us, you know, older kids. Jess starts running down the beach. I go up to the Lifesaver Tower and, you know, we're yelling out, where's Ashley? And, and his older brother, Ashley's older brother was there. He was freaking out. And we're calling his parents and the people back at the campsite. Where's Ashley? Does anyone know where Ashley is? About five minutes later, we got a call. He'd, he'd wandered back to the campsite. He was fine. He was swimming in the pool. He was happy as Larry. And Jess and I breathed a sigh of relief. Five minutes of absolute anxiety and fear and terror as we thought the worst. Some of you know that feeling. And we read in verse 45, when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, they found him. Three days. Three days of fear and chaos, yelling out his name, praying that God would bring him to them, asking every person they passed, have you seen my son? Now, of course, I'm making a lot of assumptions here. I, don't, uh, I, I know that we don't see them here in the scriptures clearly, but I do think these assumptions are probably pretty accurate. It's interesting that Luke decided not to include any of that. And I think that's for good reason. You see, Luke has identified that this is not a story about a fear-filled three days for Mary and Joseph. This story is not about Jesus' coming of age, his tour of Jerusalem or his upcoming bar mitzvah. All of that are assumptions that I've made this morning. No. And while I found it incredibly difficult to come up with a kind of main focal point for today's message, I think it lies somewhere within verses 46 and 47 where we read, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. There's a few um, pretty significant mistakes which we could make in reading this because this is a bizarre thing that took place. And so the question arises, how does this 12-year-old know so much? How was he able to amaze even the smartest theological scholars of the day? See, after the, the uh, feast of Passover, all of the, the kind of top, the, the PhDs of today in regards to biblical studies, they would come together in, in the Lord's house and they would discuss these big issues. How did this 12-year-old managed to even surprise them. And the simple, and I would say incorrect answer, is, well, he is God, isn't he? Of course he knows all this. This is God incarnate. And God knows all things, so therefore Jesus from birth knew all things. And this is where we butt heads with one of the real mysteries of Christian theology the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The incarnation being God, Yahweh, 
the creator of the universe, taking on human flesh, taking human form in becoming Jesus. And then what do we have? We have Jesus simultaneously being fully God and fully man. Now, it's important to know that from the time of Christ, this has remained as one of the, uh, if not the biggest challenges we face in Christian theology, because it doesn't make sense. How do you be fully God and fully man? It's like me saying I'm fully man, I'm also fully a banana tree. It doesn't make any sense. During the 5th century AD, the church faced one of their most critical challenges in the rise up of two distinct heresies which both threatened the well-being of the church. The first heresy was the Monophysite heresy. Put your hand up if you've heard of the Monophysite heresy. No? I hadn't either until this week. The Monophysite heresy taught that if Jesus was one person, therefore he could only possess one nature. And I understand why this grew in popularity, because every person who had ever lived and every person who will ever live possesses only one nature. Nature, monophysite, prefix mono, meaning one. The question would then arise, was his nature human or divine? It can't be both. Was it human or divine? Which gets very messy because if Jesus was only human, then his death would mean nothing. It would just be another human death. Humans die, thousands of them, every day. And if he was only divine then Christ couldn't sympathise with us in our suffering. He couldn't experience temptation and then withstand it. He couldn't experience hunger and thirst. And we see in the scriptures that all of that is true. Eric Raymond, who writes for the Gospel Coalition, put it like this. Jesus had to be fully man so that he could identify with us, suffering in our place and sympathising with us in our weakness. And he had to be fully God so that he could satisfy God's wrath and secure for us true righteousness and life. The second heresy is known as the Nestorian heresy, this time seeking to reconcile the fully human and fully divine by proposing uh, that there must be two people, that Mary only bore the human Jesus, because how could a mere woman ever bear God? And that the divine Jesus took over the human form of Jesus at a certain time. We can probably think of when that time might have been, when the spirit descended on Jesus like a dove at baptism. That's kind of where they think it happened. As I said, this was motivated by the, by the view that Mary could never bear God. I'm trying to remember it. There was a, a Latin word for this that I read this week. I can't remember what, exactly what it is. But it was basically, there is no way that Mary could be a God-bearer. And that does actually make sense. Once again, I understand where those people come from. And I understand that this is an incredibly complex issue. I called it a mystery, a mystery before, because I believe it is. I don't have all the answers for us today, but I can say with utter confidence that we don't see this Nestorian view on the pages of Scripture. It wasn't one nature. And it wasn't two people or two beings. No, it was two natures and one being. And we've got to somehow sit in that mystery because that's what we see in Scripture. It was two natures and one being. And who was that being? Our Lord Jesus Christ. The question for us today remains, how did Jesus know all this stuff? 
As a 12-year-old boy, how is he able to impress even the smartest in the scriptures? And I think our minds do us a disservice when we go down this rabbit warren that I just went down, thinking that the only explanation has to do with his divine nature. And it's either that his divine nature knows all things from birth, which I don't really agree with, or the divine nature reveals truth to his human nature at different times. Kind of like his, his divine nature is on his shoulder and he's whispering at certain times. You know, this is, and we do see that in the scriptures. Think about the prophets in the Old Testament. They weren't God. They certainly knew a lot, didn't they? And that's why uh, uh, he knew the woman at the well. He knew everything she'd ever done. That's why he knew that it was Judas who had betrayed him. But when it came to the coming of the Son of Man, do you remember this story? The coming of the Son of Man, the day and the hour remained unknown by the Son, only known by the Father. I think we see this as Jesus hung on the cross and called out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so with the 12-year-old biblical genius in the temple, was this Jesus' divine nature, whispering to him the right answers, kind of like as we see throughout his life? Once again, I would say no. I don't think that's the case either. I said it before. I think we do ourselves a disservice when we think that the only explanation for this is Jesus' divine nature. You see, I don't actually believe it has anything to do with his divine nature. I don't actually believe it had anything to do with his divine nature. I think it has everything to do with his sinless nature. Did you catch that? I think it has everything to do with his sinless nature. Does anyone know Matthew 22, 37? No? It's a good one to memorize. And as soon as I start, you'll all go, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now I have a confession to make. I have not for one minute loved God with all my heart, with all my soul, or with all my mind. Not for one minute. But can you imagine the wisdom I would possess if I had? You'd all be sitting here and thinking, this guy's got something to say. I'll listen to him. He's loved the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his mind, even for just one minute. His wisdom must be overflowing. Can you imagine how smart you would be if you had loved God with all your mind? How alive and informative the scriptures would be if when you read them, you weren't distracted by sin. If every sermon you had ever heard, you weren't distracted by the preacher's annoying habit. I've got a few. Or that rattling fan. Or even just pure evil thoughts. No, every time you were taught in the scriptures, you had fully applied yourself. Loving the Lord with all your mind. Can you imagine if every thought you ever had honoured God? If you never had the distraction of sin ever cloud your mind? I even think about it in the classroom. I'd be so smart at math and English and science. I would know everything if I'd never been distracted, right, by sin. This is how it was for the 12-year-old Jesus. Now, just remember, 12-year-olds today are stupid. <laughs> are they not? They can't tie their shoes or make their own lunch. I'm exaggerating, of course. They can't make significant decisions. They certainly don't know the scriptures well. But you have to remember at 12 or 13, Jewish boys celebrated their coming of age. It was 
They're becoming men. This was the time for them to take responsibility for their lives and their faith. So these boys were deeply trained in the scriptures at this age, memorising huge sections of the Old Testament. And this 12-year-old boy has never been distracted by a girl. He has never dozed off during class thinking about something unrelated. He has applied himself at every single opportunity. Every second of his 12 years, he has loved his God. He has loved the Lord his God with all his mind. Imagine what you could learn if you were perfect. Jesus didn't need to rely on his divine nature to blow the socks off these biblical scholars. He did it all with his perfect, sinless nature. That's what I believe. So I guess my hope for us today is that we would simply marvel at the life lived by our Lord Jesus. That we would actually be deeply encouraged by his sin-free life. That we would anticipate his ministry, which we will begin to look at over these next few weeks. That we might consider the ministry and teaching of a 30-year-old who has lived a perfect sin-free life. If he was blowing away these biblical scholars at 12... It's no surprise, but by the time he began his ministry, at 30, people were saying, no one is like this man. There is no one like him. They didn't even compare him to the Pharisees because it was no comparison. No one is like this man. I hope this morning that you would take these scriptures, remembering what we have looked at already in Luke's gospel, remembering his birth, remembering his death on the cross, which we reflected on during communion. Remembering all of this, treasuring them in your heart. And just as Mary did, ponder them. Think about them. Spend time in devoted worship and remember Jesus' life. There are elements of this passage which I haven't touched on this morning. And maybe you're sitting there and you have questions. Don't leave here and never think about them again. Write them down. Talk about them in your Bible study groups. Ask that God might reveal the answers and the truth of the scriptures. Ponder them. Ponder it all. Let me pray. Father God, we are so um, compelled by the life of our Lord Jesus. What an incredible life he lived. Heavenly Father, we are um, so thankful as we have... Um, remembered consistently throughout this morning in our worship, um, in our time of prayer, as we welcomed in Kim in January and in communion, uh, we are consistently reminded of Jesus' life and his death on the cross, your love for us displayed in Jesus. Father, I pray this morning that uh, we wouldn't be distracted, uh, that our minds maybe wouldn't be distracted by uh, some of the, the confusing elements of Scripture the things that our, our kind of simple minds can't reconcile. How is, God, how is Jesus fully God and fully man all at the same time? Heavenly Father, I pray that we would boldly believe that, that we would share it with people. Um, Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for uh, the, the reality of a life lived sin-free that we get to read in the Scriptures. Oh, how, how close we would be to you, Heavenly Father, if we weren't distracted by sin. Uh, oh, how wise we'd be. Um, 
how intelligent we would be if, if we had loved you for even a short moment with all of our mind. And yet, Heavenly Father, we know that that is not the case and that's what makes the gospel incredible. It's what makes Jesus' death on the cross so amazing is that he wasn't dying for people who deserved it. He didn't take the punishment of people that didn't deserve to be punished. Heavenly Father, I I pray that that would always remain at the centre of all that we do uh, and and all that we we think about and, and all that we do out in the world as well, Heavenly Father. I thank you for our Lord Jesus. I thank you for um, the life that he lived. I thank you for the scriptures. I thank you for Luke, the the gospel that he has written for us, that we can reflect on these incredible stories. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would continue to give you all glory and honour and praise because you deserve it all. In Jesus' name, amen.